Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today on the History with Jackson podcast, we are speaking to author and historian Luke Daly. Luke is the host of the Daily Medieval podcast and the author of Medieval Latin, a beginner's self-taught guide. And today Luke is talking to us about the commercialization of saints in the medieval period. Luke, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing awesome. It's good to be here, man. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to this, yeah. Yeah, no worries. I'm absolutely buzzing to talk about this topic because it's such an interesting topic. It's such a niche area as well. It's something that we don't often mm. look at as historians. So I'm really excited to get into this with you. Now, firstly, firstly, Luke, can you tell us what a saint is? and how one becomes a saint. Yeah, I mean, so a saint in a way is kind of, you can almost say it's the Christian celebrity of the, of the medieval era. Um, it, it kind of is essentially a, a religious role model in the eyes of Christianity and a vessel for God. Um, so there's kind of two pathways to becoming a saint. Um, you kind of can be, you live as an aspirational model of what Christianity is or should be. and on your death, because you were such kind of a devotional figure, um, then you can be venerated. The other way is, of course, is being a martyr. Um, so you die trying to protect your faith, trying to protect or defend Christianity, um, which is kind of a very common way, actually, that many people became saints, especially um, in like the later medieval period. Um, but sainthood could only really be achieved once you died. And there's kind of two main steps um, once you died in becoming um, a saint. First was veneration and then it was canonization. Um, and not every saint actually achieved canonization, which is quite interesting because basically sanctity was authorized by um, the local bishop and the tomb was venerated. And then um, basically once miracles and kind of a life of the saint was kind of constructed and everything, it would be then put forward to the Pope for authorization, um, which could be refused or could be approved. If it was approved, you would then, as a saint, gain a recognized feast day and your cult would be verified and there would be an encouragement to promote the saint. Um, but not many people, uh, not all saints gained that kind of canonization, um, but a lot of them did get veneration. Yeah. That's a, that's a great great way of looking at how people became saints and the detailed structure that you have to go through in order to promote someone into that kind of position but the way you you talk about the different ways you become a saint you kind of allude to that is there there's different types of people who become saints so what what types of people become saints i mean in a sense any anyone could in effect a saint um but typically it was um holy people bishops archbishops um popes um and then in terms of uh kind of the lay community it was it was kings um and, and knights um typically uh, it's very rare apart from on the occasion i guess of william of norwich that someone of a very low class would become a saint 
Um, so it's typically those kind of higher higher authorities that could become saints. Yeah. Okay, and it's it's interesting, especially here in the East Midlands. You know, we still we still kind of have imagery of of Saint Edmund uh, and a lot of English imagery of Saint Edward the Confessor. So I can kind of see that that path you're going down with the the martyrs and the kings because of what they did in their life. Yeah. Now, there's quite a lot of saints in the Catholic Church and essentially every single day is dedicated to one of them. But how yeah. important are, are these saints to everyday religious life in the medieval period? So, I mean, it's, it, they're incredibly important. I mean, like how I said earlier about the saints kind of are a vessel for God, um, it kind of provided an outlet to practice faith and to pray to um, because it was almost uh, in a kind of a, a, a kind of in terms of praying it, it was almost unattainable to to ask god of something but by asking the saint was kind of almost like you know if you work for facebook you can email mark zuckerberg but you could email your line manager that kind of breaking down the distance between you and 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 kind of what you want to attain um and so you know thousands of pilgrims would walk these pilgrimage routes going to these cathedrals because it was a way that they could practice their faith it was an outlet that they could devote um donations and, and practices to and it gave people hope really and i think especially in you know as you kind of get on to the 14th century with the black death it definitely gave people hope yeah <laughs> And perhaps why we've seen a, uh, an increase in religiosity at this very moment as well. Mm. Now, in 1066, there's a there's a massive watershed moment in in English history at the Norman Conquest. Now, obviously, the Normans have a very different approach to life um, due to their more medieval French or French influence into their lifestyle as opposed to the more Scandinavian influence in the english lifestyle now how did the norman conquest affect uh britain's relationship with saints and religion yes i mean it's it's there was a really big impact actually um with this kind of imposition of of norman culture and, and kind of the way that they do things on the continent what you see is actually a lot of these monastic communities trying to really legitimize their saints in this new world. Um, you see new practices emerging. One of the main things is the production of hagiographies, which is the life and miracles of the saint. Um, and also you see translation ceremonies where, again, these are all things that come from the continent um, that weren't previously seen in you know, Anglo-Saxon England. Um, but the reason why these these monastic communities are doing them is so then they kind of fit into this kind of Christian culture that, that you see in France and and you know Italy and all these other places. Um, and you also see as well, quite interestingly, a real boom in bishops predominantly becoming saints, um, which you don't quite see beforehand. Obviously, you know Saint Edmund, um, for example. Is, king um, and there are quite a lot of different kings and rulers that become saints in the anglo-saxon period but afterwards you then get people such as thomas beckett who of course is a bishop um, emerging as saints as well and you don't see as much kings 
becoming similar. So there is a definite shift um, between these periods um, marked by the Norman Conquest. And it's it's interesting you say that the rise of bishops as well, um, mm. not always considered the most important position within the church, but certainly rising in prominence uh, and definitely with the Roman, not the Roman, the Norman um, influence. It's, it's quite nice to see that change happening. Now, you've mentioned monasteries and you've mentioned saints and bishops and translation ceremonies, but how important were these, were these saints to abbeys and monasteries throughout this period? I think w- one thing that is quite interesting that's seen in sources um, is about this kind of territorial influence and, and kind of monasteries and abbeys trying to spread their sphere of influence over pilgrims um, to kind of, in order to gain wealth, but also patronage, art, culture and faith. So saints were kind of a really strong way that they could, they would be able to compete with bigger monastic communities, especially on the continent, such as Cluny or the Abbey of, of Saint Denis in, in Paris. Um, so they were definitely, by especially marketing their saint to people on the continent, it helped bring in this kind of art and culture that is kind of unattainable otherwise, in a sense. Um, so they they very they were pretty key in, in running a, a kind of a idea of status, really. And it's it's quite nice to see that not only is trade one of these ideas where I, ideas, culture, uh, are, is exchanged, but actually pilgrimage is commercialization and almost a holiday really is another example of this cultural exchange across Europe, which is so important and clear to see for quite a lot of people for the medieval period. Now you've touched on spheres of influence and marketing, which are not traditionally ideas we associate with the church how did the church start to commercialize these saints you've touched on it ever so slightly and where is this money coming from i mean essentially it comes from donations from pilgrims um the whole aim in a sense of of having of marketing these saints is to bring in um pilgrims and, and by extension bring in their money um, we see from sources such as William of Malmesbury that saints that, that promoted a culture that you were expected to donate a degree of your finances to the local shrine. We see in the miracular of um, St. Erkenwald in London um, a demand that you should, be, you should come to the shrine and that you must donate your money. And, and so this, that's kind of where it is really in, in a kind of odd sense it's not marketed for massive payments from say kings or nobles but it's about taking the money from the everyday person in a sense um which i guess may sound malicious whether it was or not is, is a difficult thing to distinguish um but it was it was the coin from the everyday person and it's it's interesting to see how the everyday person is is the target much as it is today with how as you said modern day celebrities medieval celebrities being the saints mm. how they're still targeting the same people and and they're working and marketing 
around the same people. And much as modern day people tend to flip flop around which celebrities they worship and they support, I I'm I'm trying to take a a, a quick guess that were these medieval people consistently changing which saints they were supporting or worshiping at this time or did they they have a saint and just stick with that saint yeah i mean it comes back to that idea of the whole pterosaur influence um there's i can't remember who it was now but there was a source from basically um somewhere in the west of england that was Kind of a bit jealous of, of all the of all the pilgrims going to to Saint Edmund in the east, and so they sought to promote their cult in order to bring some of those pilgrims back. And so, yeah, I mean, in the way that we have trends nowadays, and people switch between the newest trends. When you had a saint pop up that was doing all these miracles, people would people would go and focus their faith to them because that was the newest thing. It was almost as if the miracles of saint could eventually run out almost so that you would switch in between them. I mean, for some people who are in the local area, of course, you, you might stick to one saint for your whole life. But in a kind of wider picture, there was this kind of battle, territorial battle between monastic communities over pilgrims um, because people would switch between them. And given that it's a, it's a peaceful religion, on a whole, the message being given is a peaceful message. It's quite interesting to see that there's a lot of infighting within the church. There's political mm. battles creating these cults and trying to lure these people into their cults and following these saints. Now, once, once the medieval people, the everyday man has been lured into this cult and worshipping the saint, how, how do they go about worshipping these saints and being involved in these cults yeah so essentially a cathedral would have a section where the shrine is um and and people would be encouraged to um proceed around it and pray and donate um but then obviously um something brought in in post-conquest era is this kind of idea of ceremonies and feast days such as the translation, um, which obviously you see big, big influxes of pilgrims when the um, ceremonies happen. So those are kind of the two biggest ways, really. You have the everyday prayer and donation, um, but also then the big events that are coming. And these these big events within your paper, you you really build the occasion up and you you talk about the majesty. But the one thing that sticks out to me um, quite clearly within your paper is the idea of candles um you you speak about thousands of candles and and candles within god knows how many ceremonies mm. uh, how how are candles such an important part of worshiping saints and as a personal interest question typically how much wax was used for these ceremonies yeah uh I mean, it was an incredible, it's an incredible amount. Um, and wax is quite expensive for the volume that they were using. Um, you see when um, Henry II and a few other kings go through um, these kind of 
uh, cathedral areas and they visit these, these shrines, they donate large amounts of, of waxes, um, you know, half a ton's worth of wax in a way. And what you see as well in the finances is how much this kind of wax costs. Um, Norwich, for instance, had kind of an annual budget for the whole year of 50 pounds to maintain their shrine. Now, 30 pounds of that was used just to buy wax. Um, and this was used to buy essentially, yeah, about half a ton of wax. Um, and this would just be used for um, altars and donations um, and for pilgrims to buy and light a candle in the same way that kind of we do nowadays when people go to a church or, or a cathedral and they light a candle and make a prayer. This kind of wax enterprise had to fuel this. Um, and especially if you're having ceremonies such as translation ceremonies where hundreds, even thousands of pilgrims are coming, you need to have a lot of wax to sustain that, which is why then it's interesting when you look in the um, miracles of St. William, how every single miracle involves this idea of donating wax to kind of help supplement that, um, that cost. And pers as, as a personal interest, it's never, it's never been an industry which I even thought about linking to the church or mm -hmm. saints. Uh, and it's so interesting to see that there's this massive industry that's sprung up and churches are, are dedicating large chunks of their finances towards having to sustain the wax uh, stores that they need for these yeah. ceremonies. Now, we've looked at where the money's coming from and we're looking at where the money's going, but how much money did these churches and these cults need to sustain themselves? Mm. Uh, so this is it's very difficult because of the kind of finance accounts to pinpoint uh, an exact figure, but from what the kind of finances show, to sustain a cult, you have to sustain the shrine itself, obviously, so the tomb and, and kind of the surrounding surrounding shrine. So to maintain the shrine, typically you would employ a shrine keeper. Um, now there's evidence of two shrine keepers at Canterbury, each were paid one penny a day. On top of that, wax, of course, this massive cost, would cost um, the cathedral five to seven pennies per pound. So if you're getting half a ton, as we see at Norwich, that costs you 30 pounds. Then, of course, you have the building projects to build the shrine itself, to maintain the shrine. This could be, you know, £100 as well. And so it's difficult to, exp to express the exact number, but it was really expensive in a way. Um, and this is one thing that I looked at uh, in the paper was kind of, was it really a viable cost? Because there's a hell of a lot of input here um, to kind of to, to get it up running and to get it going. Um, and you know, this doesn't take into consideration all the other potential people who help in running um, the shrine and its cult and all the different, I mean, the cost for doing a translation ceremony, and, and especially if you made it big, it's, it's really expensive, um, to say the least. So did these, did these cults provide a stable income for churches and, and how much of a burden was it on some of these these places? So uh, I guess the conclusion that I make is that um, it, it's not really, it's kind of a temporary 
um, gain rather than a consistent income. You, you had to make quite a high investment. Now, when we look at Canterbury with Thomas Beckett, they yielded an incredible amount of wealth. So actually it did account for quite a lot of the church income um, because you had thousands of pilgrims coming to visit, each of them donating. You had kings and royals coming because he was such a prominent figure. However, when you look at Norwich, it was a complete failure. Uh, they never really took off. They did a series of translation ceremonies to try and gain people, but it never really, you know, it never really emerged as one thing. And so for them, it was more expensive, really. Um, so as such, it kind of, Saints really just provided a temporary, it was a temporary hustle rather than a permanent and stable income. Um, but it was, it aided in helping that prominence and status of them long term i guess oh, and i really like the the temporary hustle uh kind of <laughs> phrasing of that it kind of makes it seem that you know these churches can't sustain the the income from from the saints now i wanted to touch on actually the seeing how churches were able to maintain the relevance of their cult to maintain the the relevance of their saint because obviously as you've just touched it's not a stable income so at some point the relevance of the saint must be decreasing and people's interest in that saint must be decreasing but what did churches do to combat that yeah i mean this is where uh hagiographies play quite a key role in a way because um as a part of to go alongside the saint you would produce a hagiography, uh, which could be split up into three main sections, the life of the person, the discovery of their relics, and then a collection of their miracles. So this was kind of a physical, uh, a physical thing that, that was attributed to this person as to why they're worthwhile in a way. And what you see is that um, in different uh, administrations that come in, they, re they edit and adapt the hagiography to kind of renew it, to, to add more miracles to it, to, to change different aspects, to kind of keep that life of the person going, the memory going. You also then have, then obviously the ceremony. So you have the translation ceremony, you might have multiple um, over time, if for some reason, sometimes they, they will translate the body to a new area if they're doing building projects. Um, so that's a whole ceremony. And then what you see actually with um, Thomas Beckett is um, a kind of anniversary ceremony as well, 10 years after he died, 50 years after he was translated, you know, so forth, um, to try and reinvigorate those, those pilgrims. Because what we see um, from the donation finances is that after these ceremonies, which kind of give you a peak, there is a steady decline of pilgrims afterwards. And so it really does take quite a lot of effort to maintain relevance, really, especially if new um, saints are popping up around you. Um, so you really have to double down on it. And it's interesting that they're using all of the, all their own skills, you know, the writing, the transcribing, to try and maintain uh, the cult around their saints. And you touch on Thomas Beckett. I, th I think Thomas Beckett is an absolutely fascinating character mm. and a really interesting part of English history. 
But what we often don't talk about with Thomas Beckett, we, we tend to get bogged down in his murder and his relationship with King Henry. How does Thomas Beckett's cult emerge? And how was it just one place that made money off this cult? Or was it a more widespread kind of cult where various different parties were profiting off him? Well, Beckett um, is an interesting case because it's almost one of the reasons why I undertook this topic because what you see with Beckett, so usually when you look at, say, um, St. Edmund or any of the other um, saints, they don't really become saints. Some take decades um, till till they get that kind of veneration and that cult emerge. Um, whereas Beckett is extremely quick. So, I mean, he is one, one of the most recognisable and famous people um, in medieval history. Um, and so he has obviously this confrontation, this, this heated um, issue with, with um, Henry uh, II, um, gets killed. And then essentially within, that, within three years, there are two hagiographies written about him. And um an a, 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 a invitation to the pope to venerate and and canonize him and what we actually see is a really interesting letter from the pope writing to um canterbury to say take t- more time to find more miracles and and witnesses before asking for official veneration you, you're doing this way too quickly and it's almost a bit strange now What's interesting is that um, is that the community of Canterbury, in kind of, is actually soon put under threat by an attack because of this kind of political rawness. They're they're trying to kind of make money off of the saint. They're trying to get him out there, get people coming, and it's almost too quick. People are still, you know, grieving over it and and still seeing what's the the, the kind of short term repercussions are. And they're getting straight into it with, with, with everything. And But what is interesting is, is that they are successful. And what you see is other churches and sites, particularly around Kent, who claim connection to Beckett. Now, a good example, actually, is um, Carlisle Cathedral. Um, and as soon as the um, saint died, they quickly claimed to hold the sword that martyred Beckett. Um, but then what you've see as well which is quite interesting is then with the establishment of Beckett's cult monastic communities with major saints were also keen to protect their own saints so you have Reading Abbey for example which reaffirmed and emphasized visions of Saint James the Great who informed the sick that they could only be cured at Reading nowhere else so you see places popping up that are seeking to make money off of um, Beckett and then you see places that are kind of trying to really protect themselves from this new saint because of how popular he is, because of the so many pilgrims visiting literally straight after his death. And it's, 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 it's a sad case, really, to see a whole country grieving. But people and the church manipulating that cause for their own benefit Really, and you see that, you know, as you just said, with Carlisle and with Reading Abbey as well. And it's really interesting to see those dynamics playing out. 
Now, a second saint that you mentioned in your paper, and I do really do recommend your paper to everyone, is is a saint which I feel a particular affinity to here in the east of England, and it's it's Saint Edmund. Now, you've touched on him just briefly when we were talking about Thomas Becket. Now, how did how did Saint Edmund's cult arise, and how did how did certain places try and commercialize Saint Edmund? Well, well, St. Edmund's an interesting case as well, because unlike Becket, he is a pre-conquest saint. Um, so he was a 9th century king of East Anglia. Um, and the story goes that you have the great heathen army invade East Anglia. Um, any Vikings fans out there will know about that. And basically, Edmund, in order to defend Christianity in England, sought to defeat them and push them back. He was, however, captured uh, and defeated. Um, he was tied to a tree, shot with multiple arrows, and uh, beheaded, and his head was stolen, apparently, by a wolf. Um, so the group of monks basically seek out his body, and this is kind of where this miraculous event occurs, because one thing you should know about saints is that their body is perfectly preserved. It doesn't decompose. So they find his body perfectly intact, and they find the wolf, um, with the head, the wolf willingly gives it back, and the head reattaches with this body. And so they're like, wow, this is awesome. So the cult then kind of develops around that story. And it's still, I mean, if you go um, to bury um, St. Edmunds now, there's this kind of old whole idea about the wolf and everything is still so prominent now. But what is really particularly amazing about this cult, and what is my favorite thing about it, is that it's kind of their exploitation is so blatant. Um, Edmund was translated in 1095, um, which unlike Beckett that was um, kind of venerated and translated within four months, obviously this is you know a, a couple of centuries after. Um, and his um, accompanying miracle was produced and written by a guy called Archdeacon Herman. Now Herman and Abbot Baldwin is kind of then what we see about this mass marketing commercialization, almost commercializing and marketing a product how you would nowadays. Um, and basically Herman himself is, um, after he dies, is accused of simony, which is the accusation of making money off of um, relics um, because he would invite people to come and walk around um, the saints too but also to um, pay a little bit extra to be able to touch the relics, because obviously it was believed that these relics had holy power. So there's a story that's written about um, Herman where a noble comes to St. Edmund and wants to basically have, have a look at the, at the shrine, and Herman, with everyone eagerly awaiting, um, brings out this, this blooded um, cloth that has arrow holes in it and it's blooded and everything and as he's kind of doing it all and, and doing his thing um he basically falls ill and dies within three days and it's and it's that kind of story that that's kind of written about by some monks as kind of a bit of a you know you shouldn't be doing this type thing so it's really interesting that there's kind of this blatant mass marketing of of edmund by by Abbot Baldwin and Archdeacon Herman. But it's it's a super clever manipulation of of the cult of of church history. 
uh, to benefit uh, Bury St Edmunds. So, you know, it's a, it's a competitive landscape. Uh, mm. English monastic and bishopric orders. Now, you touch on nobility coming to see relics and coming to see saints. Mm. The English kings have a particular affinity um, for certain saints and venerated individuals. We see that with Edward's love of St. Edward the Confessor. But how, how involved were, were kings in these two cults or, or other cults? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that actually royalty kind of doesn't, it plays kind of actually a minor role in, in terms of saint cults. I mean, you see, it's very typical, obviously, as kings travel around England that they visit and they donate to shrines. Um, and we, we see evidence of that with various kings um, donating wax and money and jewels and all sorts. But they don't really... Um, interact much and what we actually see quite it's quite a funny story in in the miracular of saint cuthbert is actually that some kings even feared saints because after the conquest when william the conqueror took over england he came into conflict with durham and, and the north um and durham of course is the site of saint cuthbert which was regarded as the saint of the north and essentially in in the hagiography Cuthbert protects the monastic community through a series of miracles, one of which is inflicting pain and illness onto King William, who was kind of attesting that Cuthbert was, was a fake and that you know, there's no reason that, to afford them the privileges that they're asking. And it actually, this kind of experience kind of freaks him out a bit and actually makes him fear Durham and fear St. Cuthbert. And the actual and he actually gives them the privileges that they asked for and cancels the attacks that he was going to um, set on them. Um, so it's kind of interesting in that kind of sense that, that you know, especially in a, in a world today where that has the, kind of, I guess, primarily atheists, that, you know, the idea that you, you, would, you would really fear such a, such a character is, is quite interesting. And it's particularly interesting with William's harrying of the North and there's, there's been claimed as a form of genocide that he would even spare a place like Durham from this attack due to the power mm -hmm. of saints. It's, it's an incredibly powerful thing to hear about. Now, it, it links the idea of faith in a wider context uh, and the cults and saints in a wider context. So how do these saints and these cults around the saints link to faith in a wider context of the 11th to the 13th century? Well, this period, many scholars will attribute as being the golden age of monasticism, really. Um, and there is just this powerful energy, in a way, throughout Europe within Christianity that is leading to the production of such incredible works of art, philosophy, literature, theology, um, as well as building projects, all aided by patronage and by the finances of shrine donations. Um, we see, for instance, in Hereford, um, massive building works being um, commissioned because of these shrine donations and because of the cults that are funding them. So it's kind of, in a way, the foundation of, of this kind of glowing age is kind of this donation to, to 
by pilgrims to saints. So it is really important in in a in that sense. And I love you love your term around the golden age. I think it's an incredibly beautiful term to define this era and define Europe's and England's relationship with with saints, certainly mm. post conquest. Now, when you have a golden age, things must end. Uh, you often end with a you often end up with a gilded age or a silver age. So how how did these how did these cults die? How did these cults end? Yeah, well, as as you say, when things go up, they must come down. And and basically, what's really unfortunate is that on on one hand, some of them just go out of fashion. Um, like with William of Norwich, you kind of what you see is this real dispute over if he's actually real um and if it is something that needs to be canonized and eventually that's um disproved and everything and so it just goes out of fashion um but what's kind of really i guess unfortunate um in a way is the dissolution of the monasteries by henry the eighth and kind of then the reformation that really just clamped down and get rid of this whole idea of cults and and, and um not necessarily idol worship but that kind of worshipping someone um, rather than God himself um, or Jesus. So they just kind of diminish and disappear by the early modern period, um, which is a shame in a, in a sense. But um, we see, for instance, with um, St. Edmund is that he is um, taken to potentially France when the dissolution of the monasteries is, is happening. Um, so there is a real fear at that time um, for saints. And, and that whole removal um, or change in religion by Henry VIII is a is an incredibly important event, not just in English history, in European history. It really changes the landscape of of religion uh, across this whole period. And Henry VIII's impact is not something to be to turn your nose up at, really. Um, but as as someone from Peterborough, I'm I'm distinctly aware of the the effect of Henry VIII, um, certainly because of our cathedral and our, our cathedral history. Now, your paper is primarily based upon primary sources, and I, I love a good paper with uh, a huge amount of primary sources. It shows a huge amount of research and dedication to your craft. And one of these pieces of primary sources that, that stuck out to me about the commercialization of saints was uh, Benedict's or Peterborough's source. I can't quite remember off the top of my head what it was, but as a scholar of Latin, an expert in the Latin language, how important was your knowledge of Latin in, in being able to read the work of Benedict of Peterborough? Yeah, so Benedict of Peterborough, actually, he was one of the ones who wrote um, the miracular of, of Thomas Beckett, actually. So he's quite a very important person in that respect. But... What you see um, in all these hagiographies, in the miracula, in all these texts is basically Latin. Um, vernacular English, even Old English, wasn't really used until the 14th century. And so we're still in this world that's dominated by Latin um, and oral tradition. Um, and mir miracles were collected based on word of mouth and um, pilgrims kind of reading about them. Um, and so essentially yeah you kind of to tackle these sources uh, there are thankfully a lot of 
um, a lot of them that have since been translated by historians, but there's still a wide range of them that haven't. And so by knowing um, a degree of Latin, it, it does help you tackle those sources um, that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Um, and with such a paper, it's really kind of prominently relying on those sources, it would be very difficult otherwise to, to write about it. And I, I suppose your immense knowledge of Latin is really helping with your <laughs> your path through these primary sources, because sometimes the Vatican is not the most forthcoming with translations for these documents. Mm. Now, a final fun question for you, Luke. As a keen medievalist, I'd like to ask you, which three people from the medieval period would you like to have dinner with? Well... So, firstly, I would say my main one, I think, would be um, someone called uh, Abbot Suget of, of St. Denis. He led a life dominated by encouraging art and culture. He was known to be a, one of the most wonderful storytellers. Um, but basically, he had a really important role in constructing the image of Capetian kingship. He had a really close relationship with King Louis, um, who was reigning at the time as is the 12th century um, and basically as well what we see is that him using Capetian kingship to also bolster the status of uh, himself and the abbey um, at Paris and so he really is a, a hugely fascinating person. Um, the next one has got to be Archdeacon Herman for his scandalous exploits just because it'd be really interesting to, to kind of learn more about um, that kind of side of things to, to see if it was I guess the extent to which it was really a, a conscious effort um, and then the last one I think that would be really interesting has got to be the renowned Venetian merchant Marco Polo because he was the most travelled man in history up until that point and to be able to see all these rich cultures that kind of I guess in history we learn about individually you know he'll kind of bring that all together and i think that's really interesting but i think that is a really really fascinating dinner time conversation that you'd have Definitely. there uh and 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 certainly never a, co a combination you will never hear of again i've certainly never heard of that converse, converse, uh, combination before so <laughs> <laughs> I, I i will hold your hands up i hold my hands up to that and say that is a that's probably one of the best combinations i've ever heard now Luke, if people want to learn more about this topic, where can they go? So there is, um, well, obviously you can read my uh, papers, <laughs> but um, if you want, there are three really good um, kind of secondary sources done by three fabulous historians. Um, the first one, the main one, is um, Benjamin Nielsen's book called um, Cathedral Shrines of England. That gives a whole vast array of, um, finances and donation culture and it's really kind of the basis in a way for all this um, kind of looking at shrines. Another one is um, John Crooks looking at uh, English medieval shrines kind of similar to, to um, Nilsson in that kind of respect and then the last one I would re highly recommend is um, Ronald uh, Finnecane's one which is uh, Miracles and Pilgrims Popular Beliefs in Medieval England that kind of looking at um, pilgrim culture, miracles, belief systems, 
So a combination of those three, I think, would be sufficiently uh, well equipped. Awesome. And I'll make sure the titles of those books are in the description for our watchers mm -hmm. and listeners. And if they want to go and find your paper, Luke, where, where can they find that? Uh, you can actually find it. Uh, you can find it on my uh, website I've got, which is um, www.medievallatin.com. It's under the article section. Um, so you can find it there. And interestingly, your website's called Medieval Latin. Now, you've recently published a book luke which is which is absolutely awesome and it is a fantastic book um and I've, I've learned a lot by just looking through it and even been able to look at some translations myself a little bit with your book so would you mind telling us about your book and telling our yeah, listeners oh, where they can awesome. find it thank you um well essentially sadly with education latin is now rarely taught at, um at, at schools and, and even universities at the university i'm at um I think they've kind of for their um, second year undergraduates they've kind of got rid of it now um, which is a shame so but it is such a crucial tool for medieval history and, it, and it's so so crucial that people learn it to be able to access this wide range of material so the book aims at basically introducing for complete beginners um, introducing medieval Latin through the use of charters because any historian will tell you how useful charters are and that that they're the foundation of, of kind of, of medieval history in a way to basically yeah, equip people with those tools to tackle primary sources. So you can find it um, on Amazon um, at um, basically if you type in um, medieval Latin beginner self-taught guide um, and you can also find a link to it via uh, my website as well uh, as well as some um, chapters uh, from it that give you an example of what to kind of look for. Uh, it really is a truly fantastic book. I'd really recommend it to everyone. I will make sure the link to Luke's book is in the description below so you guys can go and have a look for it yourself. Now, thank you very much, Luke, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, Thank you for having me. Oh, no worries. At, no worries at all. I've learned so much from you. It's a, such a fascinating topic, and I hope our listeners and people watching have learned just as much as I have. Now, guys, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you leave a review, a like, or a comment. It really helps History of Jackson grow and to reach new people. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the History of Jackson podcast, guys, and I'll see you next episode.